Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 81 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Nalo Hopkinson, author of novels such as Brown Girl in the Ring, Midnight Robber, The Salt Roads, and The New Moon's Arms. She was born in Jamaica and has lived in Guyana, Trinidad, and Canada. Her short story collection Skinfolk was named one of the New York Times Best Books of the Year. Her latest novel, Sister Mine, is about a pair of twin sisters living in present-day Toronto who belong to a family of godlike beings called the Celestials. Then stick around after the interview as guest geek Matt London joins us for part two of our discussion on the weirdest stories ever. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Nalo Hopkinson. Welcome to the show. Hi. Okay, so your new novel is called Sister Mine, and it's about a pair of sisters, Abby and Makita. So could you just tell us a little bit about those characters and how you came up with them? I've been trying to remember that, and I, I'm really not sure, but... Part of it is because uh, I've always been intrigued by Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti. It's from the 19th century, and it's about two sisters, uh, one of whom saves the other from goblins. And so I wanted to write about two sisters who were very, very close as these two were. Uh, and so I came up with uh, Abby and Makeda, who were born conjoined. They got separated at birth, and when they got separated, you know, when you separate conjoined twins, often um, they've been sharing some part of their body, so one gets it and the other one doesn't. So when Abby and Makeda get separated, Abby gets the magic and Makeda doesn't. And they belong to this family of demigods called the Celestials. And are those characters, are those drawn from folklore, or did you just make them up? Uh, how did, where did those characters come from? The characters are kind of a riff on the deities from the Afro-Caribbean belief system, which is rooted in West Africa, and you see various versions of it throughout the African diaspora, uh, wherever um, African people landed up, uh, West African people specifically. Um, so they are sort of based on them. Beyond that, I departed a bit and had a bit of fun and used a bit of imagination, but they're very clearly people would be able to identify which who's who. Uh -huh. Well, I mean, could you talk a little bit about just a, a couple of them and maybe what sort of spins you put on those characters? Well, um, I have Grandmother Ocean, who is um, loosely based on Oshun, who is a, um, a riverine deity. She's associated with uh, bodies of waters, such as rivers. Um, I made her into the grandmother of the lot and did a pun on her name so that Oshun became Ocean. I have General Gunn, who is very loosely based on Ogun, again a pun on the name. And Ogun is a blacksmith, but can also be found on the battlefield where he has a tendency to go into berserker mode. So I did a bunch of, of um, playing around with Ogun and who Ogun is um, as General Gunn, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then um, Makeda and Abby's father had fallen in love with a mortal woman, and so they're mm. um, half-mortal, uh, or yes. basically mortal. And mm -hmm. uh, so they're kind of on the outs with their family. And yes. does that have a, um, a, a history in folklore that that sort of thing might happen? 
Ah, uh, it sure has a history in um, science fiction and fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of the you know biracial savior of two races, um, or what a uh, uh, sweetheart of mine calls um, not so subtle race allegory science fiction theater. <laughs> so <laughs> I did some of my own, and the idea that they're on the out there. Uh, one half of their birth family. It's just, it's the kind of thing you can see in life everywhere where uh, the circumstances of somebody's birth, their family doesn't approve of. And so decides that they are, they aren't really one of them and find subtle and not so subtle ways to keep them um, feeling ostracized. So I just sort of drew an human foible. Mm -hmm. um, and then the magic system in this book is called hoodoo. And is that just a variant spelling of voodoo? Is that different in any way from what people think of when they hear the word voodoo? It is, and it isn't. They are related, getting into the specifics of how they are and are not related could take up most of this podcast mm -hmm. and need somebody with, with more training in it than I have. But they are definitely related. and. I think I called it mojo. Well, I think both both terms appear in the book. If yeah, 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 I, I do use them. I use I throw in a bunch of terms, but uh, I call magic specifically mojo. Uh -huh. And is there a difference between hoodoo and mojo, or is that also too complicated to get into? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, mojo feels to me like a broader word because I mean, most of us know the the, the blues song. I got my mojo working. Mm. That sense of got game okay. uh, is one of the ways you'll hear people using mojo. I think hoodoo is something specific. That's a specific set of practices. Okay. Well, I mean, one example of the magic in this book that I really liked was one of the characters was once one of Jimi Hendrix's guitars, and he was turned <laughs> yes. into a human being. Uh, how did you come up with that idea? Totally freaking randomly. I was writing and um, I don't do well with outlines. I have to outline in order to be able to have a project I can sell to an editor. But once I've done that, the outline is always very vague. And once I've done that, I just start writing. So I was writing that scene and got to a moment the, where Makeda asks something about Jimi Hendrix. And the guy leans forward and says, I used to be his guitar. And that just came out of my fingers you know i was just typing and there it was and then i thought okay that's cool what <laughs> how did that happen did Jimi hendrix even have a british guitar at any point because this guy is british um what did i just do so then i had to do some research and figure out a bit more about hendrix and his music and his guitars um and it also went in to inform the story that one was completely random mm -hmm. Well, it's funny. There's a part in the book where Makeda sort of zones out and creates this powerful magical artifact. Mm -hmm. And I, I saw a clip with you where you said that you, you have this tendency to sort of zone out and don't ask you how the toothpaste ended up in the refrigerator and stuff like that. Yes. And I was just wondering, is that part of your creative process to sort of uh, zone out and then come to and kind of look at what you've written and be like, where did this come from? Um, it can happen. It hasn't happened reliably for about five or six years now, partly because I, I spent five or six years quite ill and couldn't concentrate on anything for more than a few minutes. So zoning out in a creative way did not happen much. But I have ADD, uh, and part of that means that sometimes you just kind of lose track, uh, either because you're hyper-focused, 
on one thing or because you're not focused at all and struggling to focus and sort of taking in all the information all at once uh, and getting too confused to make any good sense of it. So I, I know the sense of I have had lovely moments that feel like moments where I'm writing and I'm writing and I'm writing. I'm quite aware of what I'm doing. Um, and then I look up and it's four hours later where it, it feels uh, subjectively like only a few minutes. Yeah. Um, they don't happen often enough because <laughs> they're very easy uh, or, or they're not easy. Writing's never easy, but they're exciting when they happen. Um, but I've heard other writers describe going into that kind of creative vortex where you sort of get lost in the work. Uh, and everything else kind of fades away for a while. And then you look up and you're surprised almost that you're back in the world. Uh -huh. And I mean, a lot of the characters in this are artists or musicians and things. There's this wonderful, I think, bohemian atmosphere to the uh, apartment complex that Makeda moves into. Mm -hmm. I was just, I think, I th did you have a background uh, in arts grants or something? I was just wondering, do you, have sure. you experienced that sort of environment or is that sort of a dream life or? A little bit of everything. I uh, grew up in, um, my, my dad was a poet, a playwright, an actor. A lot of his friends were writers or actors, uh, some of them artists. So it's a world I kind of grew up in, but not like Makeda experiences it. I have been in um, a warehouse. I've lived in a warehouse, but it was awful and filthy and it didn't feel bohemian so much as just really not any fun at all. So, but this is fiction, so mm -hmm. I can make it fun. Um, and I have, because I worked in the arts in Toronto, because I still tend to work in the arts, um, I'm very much used to that surround. So I was able to draw on it and also had people I could ask for advice when, you know, I didn't know anything about how an electric guitar works, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's a little bit of experience, a little bit of drawing on the experience of others. And, you know, I would love to move into a building that was never intended to be a house and make a home into it. I want to live in a fire station. I want to live in a silo. I want to live in, you know, uh, an old church or an old mosque uh, and make it my own. Um, it's a dream. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if it'll ever happen, but it's been a dream for a very, very long time. Mm. And you mentioned that there are, you mentioned um, that this was sort of inspired in a way by the Christina Rossetti poem, The Goblin Market. And there are actually excerpts from that poem scattered throughout the book. Uh, I was just wondering, why did you decide to include those uh, excerpts in, in here? The poem itself is gorgeous and it manages to simultaneously be, be very innocent and very sexual. It's the, these two sisters have such a, a strong love for each other that they're physically affectionate as well as just loving. And some of the lines in the poem read like sex scenes. They aren't, but they read like sex scenes. And I just couldn't help but include some of that gorgeous, gorgeous writing of Christina Rossetti's and some of the sort of the, the lines that it is possible to twist <laughs> and read as perverse. If you have a mind like mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, no, I mean, I think the, the sexual subtext uh, of the scene, particularly where the two sisters smush fruit all over and the fruit is running down. Fruit juice off the other's body. Yeah, and yeah. Like, yes, really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And uh, and there's a scene very much very reminiscent of that in here where the two sisters are kind of smushing oranges uh, on each yes. other. That was yes. the one I noticed. Are there other scenes like that that were sort of pulled out of the poem? Or um, there is a I don't want to give away too much, but there's stuff in that I refer to that refers back to the poem uh, between the two sisters, between my two sisters that that I created for the novel. Uh, and I, I tried to sort of evoke their closeness with the line about like two birds in one nest where they're sleeping in the same bed. So there, there are a few bits where I sort of refer backhandedly to things. Hmm. Okay. And so the, the title of this book I saw was originally Donkey. Um, yes. and how did that change to Sister Mine? Yeah, that was that was my editor. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, editors get to change your titles. I mean, you have to agree, but they'll work really hard to get you to agree. Hmm. And I called the novel Donkey because when the sisters uh, were younger, one of them, Makeda, was uh, a little more physically healthy and developed quicker than the other. And she would occasionally carry Abby on her back. And because Makeda is the one without the magic, she's grown up with this notion that the family thinks the only thing she's good for is for carrying her talented sister around. And so she thinks of herself as the donkey. And in fact, some of the other relatives think of her, her that way too. So that's what that came from. My editor thought that the title Donkey Though Apt was sort of ugly in what it referred to and they didn't want to turn people off the book before they had started reading it and i figure marketing department knows their job better than i do so i was okay with it uh the the neat thing is when i was most of the way through a first draft i discovered uh, a pair of sisters black girls who were born into slavery millie christine who were born conjoined uh, kind of back to back and side and side to side, and who became singers, where one was physically stronger than the other, and actually the weaker one would sometimes sort of kite her legs up into the air, and the the stronger one would walk around with her. So <laughs> I went and found you know singing black sisters where one was stronger than the other, and they were conjoined. I had not known about them before then. My friend uh, Ellen Clagis, who's also a writer, told me about them. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and, and um, Makeda collects photos of conjoined twins. I guess did you do a lot of research on conjoined twins, or did yes, those? I did. Yes, I did. Um, not so much on the the modern day aspects of them, although there's a little bit of that there. But the way they have been treated in history is interesting to me because of uh, how they have often ended up being put on display and having to be treated as one person. When you read references to Millie and Christine, they're called Millie Christine and referred to in the singular as though they were one person. So I did a lot of research into various types of ways that uh, human beings can be born attached to each other. And some of them were fascinating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the whole idea of the parasitic twin, where it's not even a whole person, it's a body part that's sort of attached to the child's when it is born just some amazing stuff our bodies can do (laughs) Uh 
And you also, you have a, I think it's a YA book out called Chaos. And mm-hmm. that was also, they made you change the title, right? Uh, <laughs> You've been doing your research. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that one I was calling Taint. And I was getting pushed back on the title from the from the very beginning because of, you know, some of the street street names, what Taint means on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of liked that meaning. So I wanted to keep it uh, and had tried to sort of modulate it by putting an apostrophe after the T so that it could also be kind of a uh, um, thing like take no sin, mm-hmm. take off skin and dance on your bones. But in the final, when I handed in my, my manuscript, the editor uh, wrote me back and said, look, my sales managers are giggling every time <laughs> the title, can we please change it? So. I did. That whole thing of changing titles, I've learned now to have a second title in reserve. (laughs) (laughs) Because frequently I seem to come up with titles that make, you know, editor's hair fall out. Uh Well, I mean, Sister Mine is very sexual. And I I would imagine a book called Taint might be as well, although it's a YA book. So I think maybe I wonder not. But I mean, is is there... um, sexuality and um chaos and what sort of yes there is the protagonist is 16 she is sexually active that's barely there in the story i mean it's obvious that she is but um i don't make a whole lot of it for me part of what was going on in the chaos is that when she was younger before she was sexually active she was in a different school where she was being slut shamed by the other girls in the school uh, you know, that kind of phenomenon where, where girls will spread rumors about each other or spread, or they'll find one of their own to pick on and spread rumors about, you know, awful things they're doing with the football team or, um, and sometimes will physically attack them as well. I wanted to talk about that because it will happen irregardless of whether the, the girl they pick on is actually sexually active. So I have a moment where my protagonist in the chaos remembers the other girls sort of passing around notes or something that said she was, she'd been giving blowjobs to the whole football team. And she's at this point, maybe 13. She doesn't even know what one is. She just knows it's not good. Uh, so I wanted to talk about that phenomenon and um, what happens to her, what happens to girls who have this visited upon them because often they're the ones who are for some reason um, casted as outsider. They might be um, different in some way, or they might be uh, newly come to the school when all the others know each other already. There's, there's usually something like that going on. And I did a lot of looking into the lives of girls who had been slut shamed. Well, actually, I mean, one of the Amazon reviews I read, they complained specifically about that line about blowing the football team, that it was too uh, graphic yeah. or something. Have you gotten Yes, that? I read that review. <laughs> I sympathize with the reviewer. She's a woman who has two girls, two daughters of her own, and she's sort of alarmed at the notion they might be reading stuff, not even about blowjobs. I don't describe a blowjob. I don't, you know, there's no, there's no sex on screen in the book at all. But the notion that they might be reading words like that, and she was also alarmed that uh, my protagonist often disobeys her parents, that one made me smile. Hmm. (laughs) 
I mean, I have a, have sympathy for the woman, but the fact is her girls may be dealing with this kind of stuff as we speak, and they'll need to be able to come to her and tell her. They need their parents to be allies, not so afraid of the world that, that they won't deal with it. So I'm of two minds, and it was how I was going to write it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, back in episode 70, we interviewed Juno Diaz and I asked him if he was familiar with your work. And he said, quote, of course, I mean, Nalo is my girl. I saw Nalo just a couple of days ago. Um, yes. <laughs> so I was just kind of curious how, how you guys know each other and how often you hang out and stuff like that. Well, I knew of his work because, um, he was making such a splash for himself with his very first short story collection, Drown. I did not know him. Um, but turned on my email one day to an email from him basically saying hi and how much he loved science fiction and how much he wanted to write it. And we kept in touch. Um, finally met, ooh, I can't remember the year, but he and uh, Joe Haldeman, who both teach at MIT, engineered having me go to visit MIT and that's when I, I met Juno. I'd known Joe before because Joe was a teacher at uh, the Clarion I attended. So that's when I met Juno in the flesh. But we've, we've kept in touch. We tend to see each other across crowded rooms where 2,000 people have gathered to hear Juno speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we wave. Uh, but um, he's, he's a wonderful, wonderful man. I teach his work in my creative writing classes now to give the students a sense of voice and language and just fierce honesty in your writing. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. Could you talk about, you just, you fairly, you started teaching fairly recently, right? At UC Riverside. Mm-hmm. I've been teaching all my writing career off and on, uh, but usually one-off things like a clarion or, or uh, that kind of thing. And I taught, I mentored at Humber college in Toronto uh, where it was an online mentorship. But a few years ago in 2009, I was offered a position teaching creative writing, specializing in science fiction and fantasy at the University of California, Riverside. I don't think there's another job like this in the world. I mean, a lot of people teach science fiction and fantasy, but they're usually not in a creative writing department or it's not sort of, there isn't a position created specifically for it. The, this university has uh, the Eaton Collection, which I'm told is the largest science fiction archive that is open to the public. It's a glorious, glorious collection. And there are three profs here who are part of a research cluster, science fiction research cluster. And a lot of our work is sort of centered around the Eaton Collection. I've uh, been to the collection and, and sort of touched sort of second editions of Thomas More's Utopia and uh, first editions of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's like, for science fiction writers, it's like going to church. <laughs> <laughs> well, well. Um, I mean, you mentioned that you've had health problems, and I, I saw you said that this job hopefully will provide you a bit of economic security. And I think some of our listeners were just sort of wondering just how you're doing. Are you, um, you know? Oh, bless them. I love science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> There are ways in which this community kept me and my partner alive through some very, very bad years. And I will always acknowledge that. Uh, so, so thank people for asking. Uh, I'm doing a whole lot better. A regular paycheck is magic. 
Uh, it's a pretty decent paycheck. Um, still struggling with a lot of stuff. Um, climbing back out of a hole of not just poverty, but homelessness takes a whole lot. But I am starting to believe it's going to hang around, that the, that the good stuff that's happening is going to hang around. My health is coming back. My creative focus is growing again. Um, I'm making a home for myself here, not forgetting Toronto and to keep making a home for myself there. But basically, I am now eating regularly and back on medication I need to be on and doing better and better every day. Oh, well, that's great. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, another uh, book you had just come out recently was uh, you, ha you, were one, you were one of the featured authors in Terry Bisson's Outspoken Author series. Um, could you yes. just talk about that series and how you got involved with it? Report from Planet Midnight. Uh, Terry approached me. Wow. See, part of my memory is bad, partly because of the ADD and the learning disability and the fibromyalgia, but put it through then five years of destitution and it gets even worse. So I remember Terry approaching me. I don't remember when or how, <laughs> whether it was in the flesh or whether he sent me an email, but he told me about the outspoken authors series that he edits uh, that are chat books uh, where one author is sort of featured. Um, they will have a story or two in there, um, an interview with Terry and an essay. And I said, yes, I thought I could do that. And we worked on it. Terry was very, very patient as I, I you know, went through homelessness and clambered my way back out to sort of having a home, to really having a home, to being able to think about writing at all. And bless his heart, he kept waiting and he, he remained patient, but you no, know, kept, kept on at me until we had a um, report from Planet Midnight, which is... It's got two of my short stories. Um, I didn't have the brain to write new ones at the time, but I picked two that most people will not have seen because they got published in such obscure places. Uh, one of them wasn't even published as a short story, and it wasn't published under my name. And then he did the interview, and I took an address I had given to the International Conference of the Fantastic in the Arts I was the guest author in a year where the, the uh, theme of the conference was race in the literature of the fantastic. And it was about a year and a half after race fail. So I knew it was going to be touchy. And I did part of the address as a performance piece that talked about translation, really about what, what we mean when we say I'm not racist. Mm. Um, so all of those are in the chat book which I had thought, I really liked it. I really loved the work that Terry did, the, the editing he did, the way he put everything in context. I loved the way the book looked. I loved working with the editor and the publishing house. But since it was a chat book, and I know particularly in this genre, we're, we're, we're size queens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we, we want the book's not a book unless it's at least 400 pages, preferably twice that. Mm -hmm. So I figured it would be mostly of academic interest. To my surprise, people have been buying it and reading it and talking about it, and uh, it's got legs. It's doing quite well. Uh, I'm very pleased because it's a book I really am proud of having done and, and uh, um, proud of the fact that Terry asked me. Um, Terry's been uh, an outspoken writer for a very long time, and um, 
that he thought what I had to say was important enough to be heard is a lovely thing. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and um, in this performance piece you mentioned, you actually enacted as if you were sort of channeling an alien intelligence. Yes. Um, Could you talk about why you decided to present your remarks that way? I had been trying to write. I knew almost two years ahead of that particular ick for that particular um, year of the conference that I was going to be the guest author. And I had been trying to write my speech for most of that time. And you know how touchy things got around race fail and the kinds of stuff that was happening. And I'd start trying to write it and I'd get a combination of scared and furious. Uh, and I'd go take a walk around the block. And plus I was, you know, still homeless and hungry. No, but then I actually had an apartment, a room in somebody's apartment, but the words weren't coming in a way that felt strong to me or felt like people would find them listenable to listen toable mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, until it was the day before the conference. I was actually already at ICFA and I took my notes down and started going over them again. And it may have been something my partner said that made me start writing in that mode of a, a translator from another planet. And I was mixing all kinds of modes because I have the translator sort of, uh, when I did the piece, I have the translator inhabit me. So we have the, the very science fiction or fantasy notion of um, possession. But the notion of possession is also one that you find in the Afro-Caribbean spiritual systems that I talk about a lot in my writing. Only it's a, it's not a scary possession. It's not a ghost taking you over so that they can vomit out every fluid you ever had in your body. It's in the course of a religious service, you you open yourself to the deity, you invite the deity, one of the deities to come down and inhabit your body for a while so that they can have talk to their parishioners. Uh, so I was... I was evoking both simultaneously because I can't, I, my, my world is a hybrid one. Uh, my references are hybrid references. So I, I just really worked that. Uh, and so I had the, this translator from another planet, um, inhabit me as a, as a horse, which is what you call, um, the person in the spiritual service who has a God riding on their head. And he and his team of translators have been listening to transmissions from Earth and having to translate them, and they're not sure they're really getting them because the translations they're getting aren't really making sense to them. So he's asking for clarification. And when they tried to translate, uh, I'm not racist, they got something like, I can swim in shit without getting any of it on me. And they looked at their own translation and thought, that doesn't make any sense, no. What sensible race would say this? <laughs> so they've come down to ask uh, for clarification, um, always with a confession every so often that, you know, sure, you guys do some crazy things. We do some crazy things, too, because I didn't want to give people the notion that I was standing there from some notion of, of, of uh, purity or being unaffected by racism. And it was a fascinating performance to give. I was shaking. I was shaking because um, I knew who Ed, who um, attends ICFA, and I knew that some of the people who were there would not be fond of what I was saying. 
but I could also hear the support of people in the audience who did get it and were and and, and, and who encouraged me. And I actually cut it short as a speech because I just couldn't go any. I couldn't bring myself to keep standing up there feeling as vulnerable as I did. But to my surprise, when I stopped, got a standing ovation from the audience. Um, so Terry had me take that speech, put it in context for people who don't know science fiction community and to whom race fail would not make any sense as a, just as a phrase. And then I put the speech in with some, some additions. Um, I have forgotten your question. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess the question was just, uh, about why did you choose to present as an alien being? And maybe is there some, um, synchronicity between feelings of alienation and extra extraterrestrials and race relations and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Well, you look at science fiction and look how often it talks about being alien, being alienated about the other. Uh, look at the numbers of blue people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was funny. Yeah. You mentioned all Avatar, the I'm looking at you, but <laughs> <laughs> um, and it is now, easier to find people of color in science fiction uh, literature and media but the issues of representation are still really really troubling the way they took for instance uh, Avatar The Last Airbender that was uh, a pan-Asian world and made the protagonist white Neil Gaiman talking about, I believe it's, a Nan it's either Nancy Boys or American Gods getting an offer for a, a film production of it and then having the producers say, well, of course, we're going to make everyone white because black people aren't interested in fantasy. So he pulled it. The kind of thing you'll hear white writers say about not wanting to write any people of color for one reason or another, but it all boils down to because I don't want people to be mad at me. So the issues are still very, very much there, even though we talk about race a lot in the literature. There's still this idea of, well, if we make this person blue and give them pointy ears, then we don't have to actually talk about what's happening in the real world. And those of us who live in racialized bodies feel that lack. We feel that erasure. So, yes, there was something quite deliberate in my doing half the speech as an alien. <laughs> I mean, I think actually a lot of our listeners probably don't know what race fail was. So do you want to maybe just explain that for, for them? Yes. I uh, believe in 2009, uh, uh, discussions on race and racism in science fiction and fantasy literature and community blew the hell up on the internet. There are some 10,000 posts that have been archived with people of color in the community talking about what our experience has been, with white people in the community talking about what their experience has been, with lots of people who are very proud to say that they're colorblind, opining very loudly on why the people of color were talking nonsense. It just got very productive. Uh, and I use that word deliberately because a lot of good came out of it. For one thing, people of color began to see that there were, we made contact with each other. Often you, you go to a con and it can still happen that, that you're the only or one of a handful of people of color there. 
when Octavia Butler was alive, it was the experience of all the other maybe four Black women science fiction writers in the community that we would go to a con and someone would assume that that's who we were, uh, to the point where um, Toby Bakel suggested we call ourselves the uh, Butlerian Jihad. <laughs> 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 I want t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> so um, a lot of the buried and not so buried systemic racism in science fiction community became laid bare. Lots of people denied it was there, but how could it not be? We are part of the rest of the world. Like I said, you can't, you know, swim in shit and not get, get any of it on you. This idea that the worst thing that could happen to you is for somebody to say that was racist and that you should react virulently against the very notion that you can be affected by your own society. People began to talk about that and people began to make space to talk about it. And one of the lovely, lovely things that came out of it was a publishing venture that's going quite well and got supported by community beautifully. And um, out of it came the sort of the 50 books challenge where uh, a lot of the readers realized that they weren't reading writers of color uh, and started challenging each other to read 50 books by writers of color in a year. And they're doing it. It's a lovely thing. Um, there's still this notion that you are somehow morally superior if you don't know anything about the background of the writers you read. And I maintain that writers have every right to not talk about their backgrounds. That's fine. But when people do, and it's important to their work, to not know doesn't mean you're morally superior. It means that you are indifferent. And so there's just all of that going on, still going on, still getting challenged, uh, still arguments going back and forth. Um, it's um, a very rich time, I think, in science fiction community, and a lot of um, nastiness has come out of it, but a lot of uh, change, I think, is beginning to come out of it, and, and it's uh, at base a hopeful time for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, if people want to embark on a on that 50 book challenge you mentioned, do you have like, what would be some of the like five or six that they should start with that you would really recommend? Oh my God. <laughs> you want me to get hate mail. <laughs> uh, five or six. Okay. Let's start with one on my desk. The best of all possible worlds by Karen Lord. It's her new one. I'm reading it now and really enjoying it. Something I'm teaching my students, Thomas King, Green Grass Running Water, a Canadian First Nations author. Um, that's two, Samuel R. Delaney, pretty much anything. That's three, hmm, 100,000 Kingdoms by Nora Jemison. Charles Saunders, pretty much anything. And um, Love and Rockets which is a, a, a graphic novels, comics, as well as Bayou, which is another set of graphic novels. There, off the top of my my head. Who, who is Love and Rockets by? Love and Rockets is by the Hernandez brothers. Bayou is by Jeremy Love. Yeah. Actually, speaking of graphic novels, uh, I saw you say that you were very slowly working on a graphic novel. Was that, uh, is there any uh, status? Progress. Progress, yeah. <laughs> No, <laughs> but I'm still collecting research. Um, it's something that my life partner and I were working on together, and, and he's gone back to school, so it's on hiatus. Uh -huh. 
but I'm still collecting um, research and notes for it. I don't know when it'll happen. It's nowhere near imminent. <laughs> Can you say what you're researching or sort of what the overall topic is? Or Part of what we're looking at is discussions of what constitutes a human being at a time between sort of the Second World War and a few years afterwards where we had the the suffragist movement where women were fighting to be recognized as people. We had corporations being designated people under the law, uh, that kind of thing. But I'm also looking at a particular African supernatural creature and the history of black men on the railroad in North America. Hmm. <laughs> you know, I can't do just one thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> it all comes together, I promise you, but I just don't know when. Okay, so um, that pretty much does it for the questions. Could I, I just, so I'm just wondering, I guess, finally, are there any other projects that you're working on or have coming up that we haven't uh, touched on yet? Yes, I am uh, back to working on Blackheart Man, which is a, a novel that I, I mostly finished and had to put aside. So um, I'll be working on that over the summer. I am shopping around a new short story collection and just generally getting about the business of um, learning to become a full-time professor hmm. and uh, getting back into my, my creative brain. So that's where I'm at. All right, great. So uh, I think we're going to wrap things up there. So Nalva Hopkinson, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank you. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Nalva Hopkinson for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned for our panel today, we'll be having part two of our discussion of the weirdest stories ever. So basically what happened is that back in episode 79, we talked about the weirdest stories ever. But then we sort of ran out of time and barely got to mention any of the movies we wanted to talk about. So we thought we'd do a little follow-up panel specifically devoted to weird movies and video games. And we're joined by a special guest geek, Matt London. He's a graduate of the Clarion Writers Workshop and the New York University School of Film and Television. He's written about film, video games, and other stuff for Tor.com, Lightspeed, and Realms of Fantasy. He's also the creator of the animated web series Space Pirates in Space, which you can watch now at spacepiratesinspace.com. So Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Always happy to be here. And so I think, first of all, we're just going to talk about what are the weirdest movies we've seen lately. And uh, I just watched a really weird movie last night called Kill List. Uh, another weird movie I saw recently was John Dies at the End. Uh, have you guys seen either of those? I have not. <laughs> Neither have I. So tell us all about it. Uh, all right. Well, okay. So Kill List is about these two guys and they were former soldiers and now they're working as contract killers and each person that they're hired to kill right before the main character kills them says thank you and it's really really creepy and uh it just gets super super weird and and i want to say i don't want to say too much about it but actually both this movie and john dies at the end start out really cool and then sort of Toward the end, I was kind of exasperated because it's sort of not making any sense. And when the movie's over, you're kind of like, wait, that's the end. But then when I think about it afterward, I'm kind of like, ah, it was actually kind of cool. So I don't know. That seems to be a 
a quality of weird movies is that oftentimes I enjoy thinking about them afterward more than actually watching them. Uh, I don't know. Do you guys find anything? Do you find that to be the case? Yeah, I think that I think when you have a really bizarre movie where either you don't quite understand what happened at the end or something about it was just so strange and settling or puzzling that you know, you never forget it. It's it stays with you because you're still trying to puzzle it out long, you know, long after the curtains roll, the long after the credits roll. Mm-hmm. But it seems like a lot of these movies they don't actually make sense, and so you can sort of think, keep thinking about them forever and mm-hmm. never actually figure it out, right? Because <laughs> right. there actually is nothing to figure out, right? There's two ways to look at that, right? I mean, on the, some movies are like puzzle boxes, and you watch them thinking you understand what's happening and then you get to the end and you realize that you you don't understand anything that happened but there is some revelation at the end of the movie that makes you go oh if i watched this film again so much of it would make more sense you know i think about movies like the usual suspects or memento as examples of that movies that make you go oh and then you see all the clues you know before and then there's others that are deliberately ambiguous either because they are missing scenes or they were meant to be incoherent and you know i think that there are there are good and bad examples of both with the former you have movies that's like oh well you just manipulated me into thinking that i was watching one movie but instead i was watching this other movie and i've seen this twist a hundred times before and it no longer has any meaning for me. You know, I think about, um, what is that movie called? The, uh, the window or the single window, something with, it had Johnny Depp and, uh, yeah, John secret, secret window. The secret window, right. Oh, that movie made me so mad. Cause it was just like, come on. <laughs> You're like doing an impression of a better movie. Like, why are you copying other movies? But yeah, when you were saying like that some movies just seem weird because there are parts missing from them, that made me think of uh, uh, Twin Peaks, was it? Mm-hmm. Where, no, no, wait, what was the, well, there was one that was planned out as a TV series and they couldn't make it as a TV series, so they just Oh, Mulholland into... Drive. Okay, Let's right. talk about Mulholland Drive because <laughs> I think that's a, I mean, that is a great example of the second thing that I was talking about, which is movies where, yes, it was meant to be a TV series. They didn't finish filming like individual episodes of the series. And so when you watch it, it's totally incoherent. But I think that once you make the choice that this is going to be a movie, you can either fill in the gaps that make it totally incoherent or just say, you know what? I'm going to just make this movie totally incoherent (laughs) and let the audience, you know, extract the meaning that they want to from it. Well, David Lynch is always going to choose incoherence. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what was there was there's one where there's just this like monstrous homeless guy behind a dumpster and <laughs> you know what i'm talking about yeah that's that's in mulholland drive oh is it okay and i, I watched the I, I swear i watched the director commentary on or something and the guy was like why'd you put this monstrous homeless guy behind this dumpster and he's like i don't know it just seemed like the right thing to do <laughs> it was such a weird scene because it's this weird con- it's like a conversation in a diner with these two guys and then they walk outside and there's like terrifying homeless guy inexplicably I mean, you can basically say uh, that's just like the weirdest scene about almost every scene in every David Lynch movie. 
Like, I, I remember somebody recommending Eraserhead to me, which was, I guess, David Lynch's first movie, or at least his first major film, if if not yeah. his first. But um, I, I got it, and I was just like, I don't understand how you could recommend this to me without preparing me for what it what it is, because it's like such a bizarre film, and truly one of the weirdest things I've ever witnessed. You know, and again, having anyone who saw a David Lynch movie that then hired him to adapt Dune just seems like such, I mean, seems like such a strange choice. It's like, I mean, let's take a really complicated, like, you know, science fictional history that is not actually particularly weird and, and hire the weirdest director ever to direct it. Although, wasn't he also in discussions to do one of the Star Wars movies or something? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's what happens when you have an independent director who gets really hot really fast, mm-hmm. has one breakout movie, Hollywood descends on that person and tries to make them do everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Darren Aronofsky, actually, that happened to him. Right. There's a, I mean, there's a gazillion examples of people like that who start off with, you know, this one personal interesting movie. And then Hollywood throws a million different kind of like general, the kind of scripts that are for movies that you wouldn't necessarily want to go see, really generic stuff. You know, and, and then their career doesn't go anywhere. It totally stagnates because whatever the next project is totally lacks the, the personal importance and the and the passion that that their debut had. Well, I, I wanted to talk about um, Pi, you know, the yeah. Darren Aronofsky's mm-hmm. first movie, because, you know, back in part one of this, we talked, to, I, I mentioned Stephen King's Ballad of the Flexible Bullet, which more than any other short story has made me feel like I was going insane when I was reading it. And for me, Pi is the filmic equivalent of that. Like mm-hmm. no movie I've ever watched that I can think of made me feel like I was going insane as I was watching yeah. it, as, <laughs> as that one did. Oh, and what a great movie that is, man. Like, I still, I, I just got chills when you were talking about it because I was just thinking about it again. And, uh, I remember when I first watched that, like, in college and it was just sort of like a random discovery. And, man, like, what a powerful movie that is. And, yeah, it's really, really weird. And, uh, and it, it but it, it's weird in that way where, like, when Matt was talking about, like, you could actually watch it again and again and you can, you can sort of start to piece more together about what's happening and what's going on and all this weirdness. Whereas a lot of these movies where they're just weird, they're, they're just weird for weirdness's sake without actually having any rhyme or reason to them. But Pi, I feel like we could probably figure it out if we watched it enough times and, and like, you know, uh, had, had the right brain to figure it out. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I'm not sure that I have that brain, but I'm sure somebody knows what it's about somewhere. I've certainly experienced that phenomenon as well. Like, particularly with Pi, watching it, several times and sort of being able to figure out more and more each time you watch it. Um, God, there's so many weird things in that movie, like the brain that he finds on the subway steps and <laughs> like that bizarre guy on the subway who talks to him. He's like being chased by the government or some like world bank. And then like he gets kidnapped by rabbis at one point. It's yeah. Like, uh, and like, I mean, even, it, even just his computer that he has in his, in his, uh, apartment and, and, you know, he finds like the weird sticky stuff on it or whatever. And like, he doesn't know what's going on. And it's like, what is happening here? Is like the computer becoming alive or what's happening? You know? And it's, it's just so strange. I mean, I remember Pi as being also a unusually short movie. Am I, is, am I remembering that right? No, it's about, it's about 80 minutes long. It's very short. Yeah. Um, cause it's, I think a lot of times weirdness is more effective at a shorter length. And a lot of times these movies spin out of control because they're trying to stretch them out to an hour and a half, two hours. And, you know, like, like probably I didn't actually watch it, but I suspect that Richard Kelly's um, 
adaptation of Button Button. What was that called? Um, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it was just called Button, wasn't it? The the Button? The, the Box? Bu- the box, box, yeah. The Box, yes. Like, everyone said that it was just, you know, it was a good idea for a half-hour Twilight Zone uh, adaptation, which is what it was originally. Yeah. <laughs> stretched, stretched out into a feature right. film. It had no business being stretched out into a right. feature film. Um, but actually, yeah, speaking of people who uh, started off with a cool indie debut and then uh, <laughs> went on to produce, like, horrible commercial crap. But, yeah, Richard Kelly, holy crap. I mean, he he directed Donnie Darko, and that was his for that was his debut, and it was like, oh wow, what a what a weird cool movie, and like you know, really really seemed like it had depth to it, and it was like it was something that would reward watching over and over, and uh, and then he went on to and was Southland Tales his next movie? Like what what a piece of shit that was! Like well, I don't know what the fuck is happening in that movie. Well, I want to talk about like Donnie Darko because I love I love that movie. I've watched it probably I don't know fifteen or twenty times. And that's, but that's a movie, like I was saying with David Lynch, that you should not watch the director commentary. Uh, and I <laughs> yeah. think we've, we've talked about this before, but it, it, you know, you have all these interesting theories for what this stuff means. And then you, you watch the director commentary and you're just like, Oh my God, this is so dumb. Well, actually, actually, I was going to say, uh, you also should not watch the director's cut, apparently, from what I've heard. I haven't actually watched it, but I've heard that it ruins the movie. The director's commentary for Donnie Darko is, Kind of similar to the extended editions of the Lord of the Rings movies. In both cases, there's some stuff that you're like, oh, you took this out for time and it's so interesting and wouldn't it have been great if this was in the movie? But then there's other stuff that you're just like, oh my goodness, why <laughs> would you ever put this in the movie? Yeah. Why is this here? I, I think the, the biggest um, mistakes with the Donnie Darko director's cut were all of the sort of like text-based cutaways there are these weird asides where literally in a in a title crawl they explain the like what's going on in the movie <laughs> and it's just like it ru- it ruins the movie cuz what what people like about that movie is the way it makes them the, that, that weird way it makes them feel you know and you're like everything about this is so strange and creepy and i can't figure out what's going on and i get covered in goosebumps whenever i see that skull bunny like that's what you love about the movie but once you see the the director's cut, it's like, there's no mystery. You know, they tell you, written down, what that blue thing is bursting out of his chest. They tell you what's going on with the weird cuts in time. They explain all of that, and it, it, it totally takes away the magic of the movie. You know, I mean, that's I think that's a reason why... Uh, directors, uh, well, and, I mean, even in writers, you know, any, any creator, when they're being asked about their work, they need to be really careful about the answers they give because that really can take away a lot of the magic out of it. Because, yeah, I mean, actually, uh, I think, uh, you and I, Dave, went to go see Moon together, right? Mm-hmm. And when we went to see it, Duncan Jones, the director, was there and he answered some questions and it was like, dude, <laughs> you need to think about what you're going to say before you answer these questions because what you just said, that's stupid as hell and just ruined the movie for a lot of people. I mean, I was already sort of dissatisfied with it by the time, you know, the movie was over, but I mean, if I had been liking it and then he had said the stupid shit that he said, I would have been like, what? You know? Um, and I don't even want to repeat it just in case anyone likes that movie because it was like really so ridiculous that it's like you just don't even want to know. I think about it sometimes in terms of like mystery versus ambiguity mm-hmm. and that the, the sort of the smell test that you can apply is, is what's being planted in a scene mysterious, which is it's teasing something that you could figure out if you really put your mind to it and stuff that's, you know, deliberately vague and inexplicable and if you really broke it down contradicts something else in the story 
Well, I mean, we kind of got off the subject of later, you know, what we weird movies we've watched lately. Um, did you guys have any of those that you wanted to mention? Oh, right. Yeah. No, when you mentioned that, I was going to I was going to mention uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild, which uh, I, I mean, has been getting a lot of attention lately. It was uh, it was just up for the Oscar. The director was nominated and, and the you know, the, the star uh, was up for Best Actress and there was a lot of uh, other nominations for it. But um, it, it, it is actually a really weird movie. It it, it sort of takes place in, I, I believe, like in the area of Louisiana or something. And it's like. Uh, but it's like in this really poor area and it's about this girl and her father like living in this like I mean basically I mean it's like it's just like a very ramshackle sort of uh, home and 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 it's it almost seems like it's it takes place in a magical realm <laughs> elsewhere it, it's so divorced from reality and I mean and there is like there is some sort of genre elements into it that sort of add to the weirdness there's like this whole thing with the uh, aurochs which is like this um sort of uh, ancient type of ox type creature uh but uh yeah no it's a very strange movie it's very very excellent though I mean I really enjoyed watching it and I mean I think it it is something that would probably hold up to uh repeat viewings or or benefit from repeat viewings I haven't seen any like new weird movies recently but I recently watched um the original Wicker Man <laughs> and uh I find that movie very <laughs> strange I think that you know it's funny cuz it's it's sort of a detective story that halfway through it you realize isn't a detective story it's something totally different. And I think that the sort of detective story mystery is a, is a nice way of getting into something bizarre. You know, you think about Blue Velvet. He's basically trying to solve a mystery, which is what sort of sends him into this bizarre world. And uh, same with Pi. You know, there's a lot of movies like this that have this, like, superficial objective that the protagonist is trying to accomplish but as you go further down the rabbit hole, you realize that the answers to those questions, you know, that y you realize that you were asking the wrong questions and that the movie ends up being about something totally different. I mean, do you guys have movies that have sort of haunted you for years that you still don't get them? I mean, because I have there's this movie I watched in college called The Deceiver. I don't know how many people have seen this with Tim. Tim OK, so the premise is that Tim Roth is this super genius and he's suspected of murdering uh, a prostitute. And so these two detectives are interrogating him and he's hooked up to a polygraph machine. But it turns out uh, that he's so smart and he's conditioned himself to be immune to a polygraph machine. And, and he sort of turns the tables on them and starts questioning them. And it turns out he knows their dark secrets and stuff. And it's just really spooky and weird. And it's one of these movies where you get to the end and I'm like, I have no idea what just happened. And I've always wanted to go back. I'm like, maybe now that I'm older, maybe I could figure out what this movie is about, although you know, I suspect that it's one of these movies that doesn't really make sense. But just for like, you know, over a decade now, it's sort of at the back of my mind. I've, I've been like, I should go back and watch that and see if I can figure it out now. There were all of these um, really interesting things set up in the second Matrix movie where like you didn't know where these like there were vampires and werewolves and there was that bizarre scene with the architect where you didn't really know what was happening and and then Agent Smith got downloaded into that guy in that real world and it was really ambiguous whether like the outside the matrix was actually inside another matrix and there were all these really cool fan theories about that i wish that they'd made a third movie that would like explain some of that stuff so i sometimes wonder like gosh what was the matrix really about 
Um, actually, you know, um, I, I don't know that I would say it, it's haunted me or anything, or but but there is this uh, sort of I I don't remember how good this movie actually is, but there, there's a movie called Cube. Uh, did you guys see this? Oh yeah. Um, so that's like a, that's a really weird movie. Uh, so it's 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 like a science fiction thing where these four people, I think it was four, but uh, there's anyway, there's these people that wake up in this in this weird environment, and it and it appears to be like. Uh, like they were captured by aliens or whatever and, and put in this, it, it's like a torture chamber. Um, and, and they have to figure out how to get from room to room in this giant cube. And it's like, it's, it's very strange. And, and there's like all these traps in all the different, um, uh, all the different rooms. And yeah. And like, I just remember, I remember getting to the end of it and then trying to puzzle out what we were actually supposed to take from it. But I can't remember if it was because it was actually weird and kind of, uh, potentially profound, or if it was just that, like I saw it when I was so young that I I just didn't quite know how to process it, and I didn't get it. He well, the guy who did it was like an he was it was like his first movie, right? He was like an indie guy who made his own film. Uh, I don't, I really don't know much about it. The director's name is Vincenzo Natali. Yeah, no, I mean he's an independent director, and um, you know, sort of in the same vein of a lot of these independent filmmakers, they make. One cheap indie movie that's a hit and then makes a bunch of junk um, and and never really regains that magic of the first film. Right now, he he made Splice. I don't know if you saw that weird movie with uh, Adrian Brody. No, I didn't see it. It, it violated my, uh, you know, it, it just looked like a standard um, science is evil we shouldn't do any genetic engineering. It's going to create a monster kind of, I mean, just the standard old Frankenstein kind of thing. It is certainly that. Um, also don't have sex with your research. That's, <laughs> that's the other lesson of that movie. Um, and now he's slated to make Neuromancer, but hasn't someone been slated to make Neuromancer since 1985? <laughs> Probably. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't actually, I don't see it on his IMDb thing here. Is that, was that just, is that just a rumor maybe at this point? Or? Oh, it could be. It's on Wikipedia. So. Oh, it's well, on the Wikipedia. I hope it's just a rumor because surely they could do better than him to get someone to direct a neuromancer. Well, let's talk about some, some weird, like actual sort of outer space science fiction kinds of movies. Um, have you guys seen Ice Pirates? Anyone? No, I, I know the movie, but I haven't seen it. I actually, uh, discovered it uh while i was researching space pirates in space mm. uh because it was this sort of like swashbuckling sci-fi comedy thing um there were some parallels but I, I i actually have never seen the movie all right this is a movie i just loved this movie as a kid it's uh the premise is that all the there's been an interstellar war and all the earth-like planets have been blown up and so there's so water has become a scarce commodity and so the really the only way to go water is to go to some frozen planet and cut out ice big blocks of ice and you know transport them back to the to civilization so of course there are guys there are ice pirates who have their you know who swoop in with their ships and and steal the ice which i think is a great premise uh, but there's all sorts of weird weird shit in this movie <laughs> um you know like at one point their ship is infested with a with monsters called space herpes um <laughs> But the, the 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 sort of climactic battle is they're they're going through a like hyperspace wormhole or something, and so time is going really fast, and so the characters are aging at the rate of you know one day per minute or something, and uh, so they're growing these huge long beards and they're becoming senile and decrepit as they're fighting, and 
all sorts, all sorts, I don't know, all sorts of just crazy stuff happens in this movie. And that, I guess, I, I know, I know someone who is related to the person who wrote it. And I guess he was pretty unhappy that you know, they took his script and turned it into this really, really campy, weird thing. But uh, I definitely rec- recommend that. I don't know if it's as good as it was when I was 12, but, uh, you know, I'm how many, sure how, I'm sure it's as good. As <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just how many really weird outer space movies are, are there like that? Yeah. You know, you can't, can't be picky. You can't be that picky. Actually, you know, it's, I mean, it's not in outer space, obviously, but I mean, just when you mentioned seeing, seeing it when you were 12, that, that just reminded me of, uh, the dark crystal, which I, I tried to rewatch as an adult and it was like, you know, holy crap, what a weird movie that is. That is like a bizarre, bizarre film, and I can't believe that like it, it became like the iconic thing that it is because like I mean people remember it so fondly, and it's like I tried to rewatch it as an adult, and I was like, I do not know what the hell anyone sees in this thing. It's like it, I was baffled by it. Well, but I think back in the eighties, there were so few fantasy type yeah. things that like any like even like legend or mm-hmm. like anything fantasy, you're like, wow, it's a fantasy movies. This is so exciting, and. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. John, I'm so sad to hear that you don't like Dark <laughs> Crystal. I find that movie so magical. Just oh. because, you know, like originally they wanted to do the entire film in made up languages, uh-huh. have no comprehensible dialogue. Yeah. And just let it be this uh, eye and ear candy. Mm-hmm. I think that's such a cool idea that like you could take a film that has obviously no actors and no animation. And just tell a story. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It was so it was so fresh and original. Wait, would they have subtitles, or you just wouldn't know what the people were saying at all? I don't know, but that was sort of the dream that uh, that Jim Henson and uh, Frank Oz wanted to do. I have to say, this movie I watched last night, Kill List. It's a it's, it's set in the UK, and the characters have these really thick accents, and the sound isn't recorded very well. And I literally couldn't understand almost anything anybody said in the entire movie, and I still enjoyed it. So. <laughs> you know, that's a proof of concept so maybe, for yeah, that so idea. Dark Crystal could have worked yeah, without yeah. the without dialogue. No, I mean I I I don't have a I don't have any trouble imagining that I I could have actually enjoyed the Dark Crystal more if it was as you were describing it just because like I know that there's a lot of, a lot of times when you have a performance that is integral to the to the story that it makes it a lot harder to to watch if it's not if it, if the performance isn't good like for instance in like i think of like star wars like the the prequels when they had all of the aliens like speaking english and they looked ridiculous and i'm like these scenes would be a hundred percent better if they just were speaking in a made-up language and they had subtitles because then the performance wouldn't be a factor and we wouldn't have to we wouldn't be like looking at their stupid mouths that don't look like they're saying what they're saying at all um so you know that kind of thing uh sort of uh, factors in a lot when you uh, when you have sort of weird alien creatures and, and fantasy creatures i think so well, i think just anything with puppets is really weird because puppets yeah. are just inherently creepy and weird <laughs> yeah um, oh actually actually yeah um uh this is a pretty weird movie i guess uh there's this movie called strings uh have you guys seen that Mm-mm. um actually that's something we should have watched that movie night but um so strings is this movie about puppets uh or i guess technically marionettes because they have strings right um so it's about these uh, marionettes, but they're living, breathing creatures, right? But they are still all connected to sh- these strings that go up magically into the sky. And so all of their buildings and stuff have, um, you know, they don't have roofs because they, uh, and, and, you know, so it's like, I don't know, I guess they just sort of have walls. I don't know. It was kind of a weird construction of their um, architecture because they had to accommodate all these wires that go up into the heavens. 
And so, like, when, if they have a string cut, it's like, uh, they could, uh, like, if they, if they, if they broken, if, or if they had to, let's see, they could, they could replace their limbs by just, like, taking another limb off of, off of a dead puppet, but they'd have to have that same string that still goes into the heavens. And, um, there's just this very, very complicated, um, world building, and, uh, it's just very strange. So. Well, I was just going to mention the sex scene in, um, Team America World Police. Oh. It's got to be like one of the weirdest scenes of all time. Like, yeah. who would ever have imagined this like really explicit sex scene with puppets and puppets, you know? <laughs> yeah. That scene is so epic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, there's uh, talking about weirdness. Like, there's this amazing scene in Dark Crystal where the Gelflings are fighting with a Skeksy and they like throw him into a pit of lava. And then it cuts to like the old sage like creatures walking towards the castle. And then out of nowhere, like one of them just spontaneously combusts just and he's gone. (laughs) And none of the, none of the other dudes walking care. It's just like so strange. And like, as the movie, you know, gets to the climax, you understand what's happening in that scene. But in the moment, it's just so bizarre. Labyrinth was one of these movies that I first, I first discovered like on late night TV. And I had missed the first 15 minutes of it. So the very first scene I saw was her kind of making her first, like her first moments inside the labyrinth when she's talking to the worm and the arrows are getting turned around. And I, I didn't know this movie existed. I knew nothing about it. And it was so strange trying to, like, figure out the movie as I went along. That ambiguity, that mystery, I think, added something to the experience because it was just like you were trying to puzzle it out. The first episode of Farscape I ever watched, speaking of weird puppets, but the, the first episode of Farscape I ever watched was, like, the third to last episode of season four or something like that. And it's, it was so, and it was actually really fascinating because there's so much stuff that isn't explained. And you're really, your brain is going full speed trying to figure out everything. You know, what the heck? Who are these people? What's going on? You know, nothing is being spoon fed to you. And I really, I often find that, yeah, coming into a movie or a TV series right in the middle is often more enjoyable than, yeah, than starting at the beginning because you have to sort of work for it, you know? I assume you guys saw Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, <laughs> that's the one where they play uh chess yes. with with death yes and then yeah. they play tic-tac-toe with death and then they play like parcheesi with death yeah <laughs> yeah because i mean because that's that's such a bizarre movie and i really love bill and ted's excellent adventure which is like it's just weird enough to be fun you know and then bill and ted's bogus journey like when i saw that i was just like what the f is going on in this movie like the the Okay, so in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, our heroes, you know, tr- travel through time and, uh, you know, meet different historical characters, which allows them to pass their history test. And then in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, they die and sort of, it's this journey through the afterlife and uh, they go to hell and heaven and stuff. And it's just so weird. And I've always wondered, I mean, I've actually heard people say that, that I should, you should go back and watch that again, that it's, uh, it has its rewards if you're, uh, not totally just put off by how weird it is, uh, right at the start. So, so Bill from those movies actually, uh, he's, he's now, uh, all grown up and making, uh, he's directing movies now and he actually has a, a documentary about Napster coming out. I actually, I mean, there's, there's been talk about a third Bill and Ted movie with yeah. them, you know, 
the premise I heard is it would be like 20 years later or whatever, and they still haven't become famous and saved the world and stuff. And so they're starting to wonder what's going on. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah, that could be fun. And it was cool because you could bring back the George Carlin character as with a younger actor because he would actually uh-huh. have been born, you know, like, because uh-huh. he was from the future. So, well, I want to do like sort of a rundown of the weirdest directors. And we've already mentioned David Lynch and Richard Kelly. Uh, some other ones I have on my list here are Charlie Kaufman, Terry Gilliam, David Cronenberg. Uh, and you have, you mentioned Stanley Kubrick. Matt, Matt has a note here. The furry sex in The Shining is scarier than guys getting killed with axes. Don't you think so? That's the most unsettling moment. What's for the me. furry, the furry sex? There's this scene at the end of the movie when Shelley Duvall's trying to run out of the house where uh, she like comes up the staircase or something. And at the top of the stairs, she looks into one of the bedrooms. And there's this old man in a tuxedo having sex with a man in a dog suit. <laughs> and it's it's in the book, actually. There's, there's several <laughs> scenes with these two characters in the book. But it's the only mentioning, it's the only instance of it appearing in the film. And it is so strange and so terrifying. It makes you feel like you fell asleep during the movie and had a nightmare. Like, about the movie. <laughs> because it just, it's so contextually bizarre. And I find it much scarier than, you know, the blood flying out of the elevator or the two little girls. Kubrick, I think, is a great example. You know, you don't think about him as being, like, a director of the weird, but in fact, all of his movies are really bizarre. You know, like, 2001 may be, like, the quintessential ambiguous movie, right? You know, if any movie has an ending that's still debated, what, 40 years later, 50 years later. Actually, and like the weirdest opening to a movie ever, it's like, you know, oh, I know. Let's start my outer space movie with like uh, half an hour of chimps, you know, or like, you know, prehistoric men or whatever it was. It right, was a, like, sil- a silent 30 yeah. minute movie with chimps. I was seriously like, I, I did not remember that at all. Like when I when I rewatched 2001, like I think I rewatched it like right after he died. And, uh, I was like, what, 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 I don't understand. What is this? Why is like, okay, so what, this is like five minutes long. No, so I'm fast forwarding. But what the hell? It's like 30 minutes long. It's like ridiculous. It's like, how can this be, how can this much of the movie be this? It's like, couldn't this be accomplished in like one scene? It's like, I get it. Yeah. I like it when he throws the bone up and it, it, yeah, I get it. All right. Does it have to take that long? I mean, my God. Did you guys see, uh, oh gosh, sorry. <laughs> that new movie from uh, the guy who did The Thin Red Line. No, 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 no. Yeah, I know. I know what you're talking about. Um, Tree what of was Life? that? Tree of Life? Tree of Life, yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you guys see Tree of Life? No. So that movie opens with, like, the formation of the universe. <laughs> and there's, like, 20 minutes of dinosaurs at the beginning. Oh, awesome. It's, like, it's so bizarre, Malick? right? Is it Terrence Malick? Malick? yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I actually, I, I think it's an interesting issue like people like like are they geniuses or mm-hmm. like i mean you know if you spend your whole life perfecting your craft do you eventually get to a point where your aesthetic standards have become so divorced from ordinary people that they don't like what you're making anymore mm. and they're going to die before they ever get to the point where they would appreciate what you're making and what do you do at that point right yeah. no i think that definitely happens yeah there's a really interesting analysis that you can find on YouTube of uh, the climactic uh, shootout in 
Full Metal Jacket, mm-hmm. where he breaks so many, uh, like film 101 rules in that scene. It is rife with continuity errors. Hmm. It's just a complete mess. And yet no one notices when you watch the movie because it's so visceral and intense. And what this video breaks down is like, he's embedding secrets and stuff inside the, inside the mistakes. Like he, the, the guy who produced this video claims that it's like this strange metaphor for the, uh, JFK assassination and that you have to have the, the continuity mistakes to make it work. That all of the errors that Kubrick made in that scene were totally deliberate. Um, there's a similar, uh, video about The Shining and how, uh, the set was designed in a way that is deliberately impossible to exist. Like you walk into an interior office that you know is in the center of the hotel with walls on all four sides, but you go inside the office and you can see a window facing out onto a sunny day. Or like you go down a hallway and you see that there's no rooms on one side. It's like an open uh, lobby. But then the wall that sort of separates the open lobby from the hallway, there's all of these room doors. And you don't notice any of these mistakes, if they're really mistakes, as you're watching the film. But as you watch it, you start to feel this sense of unease. And you're not sure why. And it's because your sense of direction is being messed with through his camera work and his set design. Hmm. So, I mean, in the case of Kubrick, at least, I mean, he's a mad genius. He knows how to point a camera. He knows how to craft a set as to not break continuity. But he breaks it anyway in these specific instances when it's supposed to make the audience feel a particular way. Without them even realizing that that's the way they're feeling. Or that's why they're feeling it. All right, yeah, so we're we're running a little short on time here, but we do want to talk a little bit more about, at least cover briefly, Charlie Kaufman, Terry Gilliam, and David Cronenberg. Um, I don't know, how about uh, you guys, what movies of theirs uh, stick out in your minds the most? Uh, I mean, well, you know, Charlie Kaufman, uh, I mean, with I think his first movie was uh, Being John Malkovich, and look, I mean, and, and I mean, what a bizarre movie that is. I think that movie's really great. I, th- I mean, he gets away with just making the most bizarre, whimsical films mm-hmm. that just seem totally illogical but you know he he also kind of has a method to his to his randomness to his to his whimsy he did a really interesting interview with rolling stone a few years ago back when um schenectady new york was coming out and there's actually audio of the unedited interview it's like an hour and a half long it's really great you guys should watch it because he talks about everything in his career from being john malkovich and even the, the work, like the sitcom work that he did before that, uh, in the nineties, all the way up until, you know, the stuff that he's working on these days, he tells this great story about a dream he had that he would create a hotel on the Las Vegas strip called Las Vegas, Las Vegas. And the hotel itself was an exact replica of the Las Vegas strip. And if you got to the point in the hotel where you reached Las Vegas, Las Vegas, there would be another entire Las Vegas strip inside that miniature hotel. <laughs> like, and then it's turtles all the way down. Um, and how about Terry Gilliam? Uh, what sticks out for you guys from Terry Gilliam? 
Uh, I mean, for me, my favorite movie of his by far is 12 Monkeys. I mean, that's just one of my favorite movies ever, but um, that's that's nowhere near his weirdest movie, I, I, I wouldn't say. Um, I mean, maybe Time Bandits is, is, would you say that's his weirdest? I mean, it's, I mean, almost all of his work is just really, really strange. And I mean, even 12 Monkeys does have its own, its own strange moments, but. Uh, I've always been partial to his animation, just because that, like, you know, we were talking before about, like, condensing weirdness to a smaller element you know whether it be like a 75 minute movie instead of a two-hour movie or a short story instead of a novel but i think that like when he does those 30 90 second animations for uh for monty python and it's just like you know the eiffel tower coming out of the queen's butt and these weird teacups with spider legs and it's so strange and it ends up being these images that you can't get out of your head, even if, you know, the whole thing that you saw is only 30 seconds long. There's a, there's this great documentary called Lost in La Mancha, where it's about a, a, a very ill-fated attempt by Terry Gilliam to film a Don Quixote movie, uh, a sort of time travel Don Quixote movie with Do Johnny Depp as a modern man who ends up in the role of Sancho Panza. And uh, like everything you could possibly imagine going wrong on a film shoot goes wrong, including the entire, like all the equipment being washed away in a flood on like day two of the filming. There's a great um, behind the scenes documentary of 12 monkeys that was directed by the same guys who did lost in La Mancha. And this, apparently the story was that they were, you know, these, these guys were way overqualified to do a behind the scenes featurette, but they were on set for 12 monkeys assuming that he was going to that, assuming that Terry Gilliam was going to screw up and fail to actually make the movie because they knew that he'd had this track record of being really inconsistent either producing something incredible for no money or some huge bloated production like Baron Munchausen and having it tank at the box office so they these guys these these documentary filmmakers were on set for both 12 monkeys and the Don Quixote movie it, with the expectation that he would eventually screw up and fail <laughs> to produce a film. I mean, there was a big potential disaster with 12 Monkeys. I don't know if you guys know this, but there's there's this artist and he painted this sort of science fictional scene of this chair. And I guess somebody, I don't know, Terry Gilliam or somebody on the production staff was like, that's a really cool scene. We should use that in the movie. And they they did the shot where Bruce Willis is being interrogated by the people in the future to look exactly like this painting. And then somehow the artist found out about it and sued them like right before uh, it was supposed to be released. And somehow they, they uh, made a deal with the artist and the movie was released. But yeah, I guess there are these sort of disastrous things happen. Mm -hmm. That's so funny. That that reminds me of um, the relationship between the movies of Darren Aronofsky and this anime film called Perfect Blue. Um, it's this, we it's a weird psychological thriller about, uh, a pop star who tries to become a serious actress, but sort of, you know, maybe she's insane. Maybe she's being hunted by someone you, you can't really know for sure. But there are scenes in Perfect Blue that are lifted. I mean, shot for shot, beat for beat in both Black Swan and Requiem for a Dream. Mm. Uh, he reuses scenes from this movie all the time. Um, and he's, I mean, he's credited the director of the film, uh, you know, before, because, you know, he, he treats him as a, as an inspiration, hmm. but it's, it's funny to see how these weird 
directors, the directors of psychological thrillers sort of uh, borrow from each other and use some of these same strange tropes. Uh, Terry Gilliam reminds me of a, of another director I, I, I want to mention, in, at least in passing. Um, he's a French director named uh, Jean-Pierre Junet. And uh, he directed like Delicatessen and City of Lost Children. Um, and those are the two weird ones that I was thinking of. Uh, he also later directed Amelie and A Very Long Engagement, um, which were also uh, sort of fantasy films, but they're uh, less weird. Um, but City Amelie's of... pretty weird. It's pretty weird, yeah. But I mean, <laughs> not not in the way that City of Lost Children or Delicatessen is weird. That's those certainly two, true. Those two are bizarre. And Amelie is just like sort of pleasantly weird, you know. It's like it's a it's a very it's a it's a very light weird compared to those other ones. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think if we're going to be talking about weird filmmakers, we definitely have to at least mention this guy. Um, and we don't have to mention that horrible, horrible uh, science fiction movie that he made that was an abomination. You mean Alien Four? Ah, why'd you say it? <laughs> you know, uh, Delicatessen falls into a category of film that I love called I I call them two to four movies. They're movies that you have to watch between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. Uh-huh. It's the only time you want to watch a movie like that because it's so strange and your brain's like not working at top speed. And, and so it just it completely blows your mind. Another one kind of similar is um, in actually quite a few ways is this movie Ravenous. It's a movie about cannibals in the Old West. It stars Guy Pierce and Robert Carlyle and like David Arquette is in it. It's the weirdest movie. Uh, but they're like at an old West fort and there's like Wendigo mythos. It's very cool, but only because I watched it between two o'clock in the morning <laughs> and four o'clock in the morning. Is there such a thing as four to six movies or? Four to six movies, those are the ones that are really strange. Actually, there was, <laughs> there was one night where, um, uh, when I was, a, when I was a kid, I had a friend who was like super rich and he, his parents would just like buy pay-per-view channels and just let them run 24 hours a day. Like it was cable. Mm-hmm. And so I would hang out in his brother's room where the TV was on. His brother had gone out on a date or something. And I, like, I was terrified to touch anything in his brother's room. I was scared to death of this guy. So he would, like, leave his TV on when he went out of the house, which is a phenomenon I've never been able to understand. But I know that people do it. So I'd go into his brother's room, and the TV would be on some pay-per-view channel, and I'd be terrified to turn it off or change the channel. And so one night, um, Interview with the Vampire was on three times in a row. <laughs> and so I ended up watching the movie from midnight to two two to four and then again from four to six and it got weirder every (laughs) single time so i i assume there is some you know there there is something to be said for the four to six movie but maybe kill list is the kind of movie that you want to watch from four to six in the morning all right so david cronenberg uh what do you guys think about david cronenberg yeah boy i mean where do you even begin with him as far as like what his weirdest movie might be i mean like from scanners the videodrome i mean the fly uh (laughs) I mean, there's a bunch of these I haven't even seen that uh, I'm sure they're uh, on, on par. But, um, I mean, Existence was a really weird one, too. I think that may have actually been the first movie of his I saw. But, I mean, uh, he actually has done some movies that aren't that weird. Like, I mean, History of Violence wasn't that weird. But I actually think that History of Violence is really strange. And that's, like, that's a sign of Cronenberg being, like, the like one of the ultimate weird directors. Because even a movie that's not supposed to be very strange 
is totally bizarre. There's that freaky sex scene in the middle of the movie where they, like, tear each other's clothes off on the stairs. And then the whole third act is, like, this weird mob shootout in that house where, like, I couldn't tell which way was up. I didn't get a sense of geography. I, like, didn't know who any of these characters are. It was, like, very strange. And that was supposed to be, like, one of his more standard linear films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this scene where uh, Viggo Mortensen sort of punches the mob guy in the face, and his face is just destroyed. I mean, he looks like he got hit with a chainsaw or something. Okay. And uh, and that's sort of that's a characteristic of um, Cronenberg, right? Is the body horror thing that mm-hmm. there's all sorts of gross biological. That's a, that's his trademark is the gross biological stuff, sometimes combined with gross technological stuff. Yeah. Oh man, crash! Oh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> like. Um, <laughs> that was that was the extent of my commentary yeah. on Crash. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, and it's funny too how that in scanners where the guy's head explodes that that's become a meme. And sometimes you know when says somebody said something really deep or profound or something, somebody will just post like "whoa" and it's just like <laughs> just like uh-huh. that, that a gif of that head exploding scene. All right, cool. So I think we're gonna start wrapping up this segment, and we didn't even get a chance to talk about video games. So maybe we'll uh, come back and do that some other time again. Uh, but before we let you go, Matt, we did want to talk to you a little bit about space pirates in space and just find out how that's been going. Why don't you just tell people like what is the premise of Space Pirates in Space? So Space Pirates in Space is an animated web series about a team of incompetent space pirates who sail the seven galaxies, robbing the cosmos one screw up at a time. So we have Captain Arth, who's sort of delusional, but thinks that he's a really great pirate. His long-suffering pilot, Jamie, who's sort of the anchor of the show. And then they're sort of surrounded by a bunch of quirky supporting characters like Goop, who's a 10-foot-tall walking jello mold. Uh, Simon, who's a lecherous teenage computer programmer. And Sergeant Abe Manchego a mercenary cyborg um, who's constantly getting his limbs blown off. <laughs> you're actually, I mean, you have a voice cast, right? But you're doing all the animation yourself, right? Or is anyone helping you with it? Right. So uh, my producer, Paul Kite, who plays the voice of Goop on the show, um, helps me with some of the asset building. So like he'll draw some of the backgrounds and some of the props that the characters use on the show. But I have, I designed all the characters and do all the animating myself. I sort of use this style that's kind of like halfway in between, uh, like an actual animation and like a like a comic. So there's lots of camera movement and a sense of three-dimensionality in the frame, but you sort of have these kind of static-looking shots, so it almost feels more like, like an ongoing web comic rather than a web series, which is great, I think, because, you know, people want like really bite-sized content anyway. And Space Pirates, you know, the each episode of Space Pirates is only 30 to 60 seconds long. So you can watch a bunch of them like popcorn, one, 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 you know, yum, 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 like that. And I mean, the characters, they kind of look like 8-bit art, like video game art. So it's this very sort of simple art. But then the animation and some of the camera moves look very smooth and very sophisticated i mean how do you uh what kind of software are you using to to do that kind of effect so 
I use um, I use Photoshop to draw the actual characters and then animate the 2D sprites in After Effects. So it's cool because the characters themselves are drawn in this sort of 8-bit old-school video game kind of way. Um, I was really inspired by video game art growing up. I was a huge fan of Final Fantasy. And this was kind of a, a spoof on those kinds of characters. You know, the team of heroes that go on a long quest. But here they're, you know, criminals and bumbling idiots. So it's After Effects that allows me to give the show its kind of signature style, which is two-dimensional characters in a three-dimensional environment. In fact, you know, there are moments where the characters will turn to the side and you'll actually see that they are two-dimensional. <laughs> uh, so there's a, I'll spoil a big joke now, but something I'm really hoping to do on the show is at one point have someone discover like the second dimension <laughs> and they're able to actually see someone in profile and it completely blows their minds like they've seen, you know, a galaxy explode. Well, it should be the third dimension, right? Oh, right. The third dimension. And uh, you, it was, it was cool. You had this premiere for it where, actually, want to just talk about the premiere. That was cool. Sure. So we had, um, we had a, a world premiere where we screened the entire first season of Space Pirates in Space. Um, a lot of the cast was there, a lot of the crew. We ended up with about 60 people, I think, showed up. And we screened it at a private outdoor movie theater in Brooklyn. Um, I'd actually helped to build the theater, which is into someone's, you know, backyard. But uh, we had painted this huge brick wall with non-reflective white paint, and then we actually projected the movie onto the wall. And it turned out really great. We actually had people hanging out of windows from <laughs> neighboring buildings to sort of like watch the movie as it was going. And what kind of feedback have you gotten on it so far? Everyone who watches it totally freaks out and loves it. Um, the biggest challenge we've had is just getting the word out there that the show exists, you know? And, um, but everyone who's seen it is just like, oh my God, I've, you know, I've, always wanted to watch a show like this, or this reminds me of shows that I really love, like Archer, or Venture Brothers, South Park. Those are some of the shows that inspired us, and and so it's really great to hear those comparisons. And so if people want to watch it, they just go to spacepiratesinspace.com. Is there anything else yeah. they need to know? Yeah, you can, uh, you can go to spacepiratesinspace.com, watch the entire series there. You can find us in YouTube, Space Pirates and subscribe to Space Pirates in Space. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter at Space Pirates X. All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thanks again to Nalvo Hopkinson for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes lately, including Laura RK and Arky123456. Laura RK writes, I discovered this podcast about two months ago, and I listened to more than three quarters of them, and they are amazing. I live in a smallish town, and when my geek friends moved out of state, I have felt high and dry. But this podcast has brought the geek back with a vengeance. Thanks for making me feel normal-ish, and shining a light on authors and other podcasts I never heard about. I have to say that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is one of the best produced and most interesting. Thank you for your hard work, dedication, and geekiness. So thank you, Laura RK. And now it's time to announce the winners of the free book giveaway that we described at the end of our last episode. Five lucky listeners were selected at random to receive a free copy of the anthology Oz Reimagined, 
New Tales from the Emerald City and Beyond, edited by John Joseph Adams and Douglas Cohen. And the winners are Scott Kreidler, a.k.a. S.K. Rydell, Andy Michaels, a.k.a. Stop That Andy, Philip Kirby, a.k.a. Fat Jitsu, Juan San Miguel, a.k.a. Rainbow War 71, and Ernie Satyricos, a.k.a. Satyricos. So congratulations to the winners. If you're one of them, please send your mailing address to us at geeksgalaxy at gmail.com, and we'll mail you a free copy of Oz Reimagined. And big thanks to everyone who entered. All right, so that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.